Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton senior Tiger Gao. In the past few months, we released around 30 interviews on various aspects of the coronavirus crisis as part of our special COVID-19 coverage. But because we prioritized those episodes due to the timely fashion and urgency of the crisis, we actually delayed the scheduled release of some of our earlier interviews, which are equally fascinating and important. One group of those interviews come from the 2020 annual conference of Princeton's Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. And this year, our conference theme is development finance in fragile states. Some of you may know that I love attending academic conferences. I get to hear fascinating ideas that people are working on across the world. And I get to interview some of those scholars and policymakers about their journeys. This interview with Mr. Scott Morris was recorded at our 2020 annual conference. He is a senior fellow at the Center for Global Development, where he directs the U.S. Development Policy Program and co-directs the Sustainable Development Finance Program. Uh, This is a think tank based in Washington, D.C. Uh, Mr. Morris used to serve as the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Development Finance and Debt at the Treasury Department under the Obama administration. And in that capacity, he led U.S. engagement with the multilateral development banks as well as U.S. participation in the Paris Club of Official Creditors. His presentation at our annual conference started with a look at debt in low-income countries. He noted that 44% of low-income countries are now either at high risk of debt distress or already in debt distress. And this ratio is up from uh, 21% just five years ago. During this time, China has somehow emerged as the dominant creditor to the riskiest low-income countries, while the amount of low-income country debt held by traditional development finance institutions and Paris Club lenders have actually decreased dramatically. So in this interview, we talk about how development finance institutions like the World Bank interact with the U.S. Congress and how they may adapt to the ever more complex situations in international economics. I hope you enjoy. And here is my interview with Mr. Scott Morris. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today. It's my pleasure to be here. Awesome. Uh, so why don't we uh, just begin the interview with a broad overview of your background, because you've truly done such a wide range of things across public service and international organizations. And so uh, would you mind just telling us a little bit more about uh, your background, how you got to work for the Treasury, and uh, how you got to work for the Center for Global Development now? Sure, happy to do that. Um, so uh, uh, we um, were here at uh, Woodrow Wilson School master's uh, programs. I I came out of uh, a master's in public policy uh, many years ago um, with sort of a a very uh, strong desire to work in international economic policy um, and and a a sense that Washington, D.C. was the place to do that. So I I moved to Washington with an overriding imperative, though, at the time to find a job and pay the rent. (laughs) So uh, after a lot of effort, I ended up uh, working for the U.S. Congress um, in my uh, first professional job. Um, and then from there, uh, took a number of uh, turns, but actually found my way back uh, to a congressional committee. And that's really where my formative years were in, in public policy uh, professionally. Um, so I was handling for uh, about a decade, the international economic portfolio of, of the 
uh, Committee on Financial Services in the House of Representatives. Um, so that really gave me a window into the set of issues that I continue to, to work on today, actually. So you mentioned the international financial institutions, institutions like the World Bank, the IMF, regional development banks. Um, more broadly, the question of development finance, uh, how do developing economies finance themselves, and particularly governments in developing countries. Um, how do we grapple with questions of debt and debt sustainability? So all of those were things that um, I was engaged on uh, within the U.S. Congress. And, and frankly, in, I think in an international context, um, the role of the U.S. Congress on these issues is not understood at all. I think for most actors, they would be surprised that uh, Congress and a congressional committee has any role uh, uh, with regard to, say, an institution like the IMF. Um, but we, we see again and again uh, where uh, within the U.S. system, this co-equal branch of government, uh, our Congress, uh, actually has a, a critical role to play. So, for example, if the U.S. government decides, uh, and particularly in its leadership position, say in the IMF or the World Bank, if the U.S. government decides that it wants to support an increase in the resources of these institutions. In the IMF, we call it a quota increase. Uh, in the World Bank, a capital increase. Um, the U.S. Congress needs to approve that action. Um, and uh, as with any area of, of policymaking in the U.S. system, um, uh, Congress isn't in the habit of writing blank checks. Uh, they often uh, will have something to say about the policy framework for these things. So it's actually uh, playing the role of a congressional staffer and a committee staffer on those kinds of issues. Um, again, gave me a good window into this world, but also um, a fair amount of influence over what U.S. policy should be and, and how it's conducted. Um, and really um, attracted me um, to, to exploring uh, this world of policy uh, from uh, other angles, so namely um, a desire to, to move to the executive branch. And this was at a time uh, when Barack Obama had, had just been elected. I was very enthused about his presidency, so um, I was eager uh, to, to, to leave the Congress behind and, and go into the executive branch um, and, and was able to, um, to get a, an appointment to the, the Treasury Department. And what's, I'd say what's interesting about it is that it was essentially taking the same portfolio of issues I had working in the Congress and transferring them uh, to the executive branch, where now I was um, tasked with directly leading U.S. engagement in institutions like the World Bank. So more in the direct decision-making role of how much money do we want to give these institutions what are the conditions we want to put on the money? How do we want them to spend their resources? Um, and so there were uh, uh, a lot of um, uh, international negotiations around questions like that. Um, I should also note that this was um, obviously 2009, 2010, uh, just coming out of the effects of the global financial crisis, still dealing with those things, uh, the ramifications, certainly for the global economy as a whole, but even for developing countries. So the role of the multilateral institutions uh, in that context was, it was an important one. Uh, it was important that they were well-resourced, uh, that they were 
um, financing aggressively uh, into an uncertain environment. So that put a lot of um, uh, pressure on, uh, on our agenda. Um, it entailed uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of travel for international negotiations uh, as we sought to strike deals across um, uh, multiple of these institutions to uh, secure their funding um, and to set their agendas for how, how they're going to engage uh, in the years ahead. Um, and then just to wrap, wrap up with a very long answer to your short question, um, uh, after, after doing a lot of that work and frankly feeling you know, quite satisfied with what we were able to accomplish in that period in a very relatively short period of time, uh, but also a little bit burnt out from too much travel um, in support of, of, of all that work, um, I decided it was time to leave the government and uh, knew the Center for Global Development very well over the years. In fact, I, uh, from its founding, um, now nearly 20 years ago, um, I was a big fan of the organization. Uh, as a think tank in Washington, it, it uh, created a very strong niche for itself in focusing on development policy issues. Um, whereas, you know, a, a lot of the, certainly the bigger think tanks um, may uh, selectively address some aspects of development. Uh, CGD was really founded to fo focus exclusively on this set of issues. And I think what we found in the history of the organization is that um, where it felt very much like a niche uh, at its founding, um, these issues have actually become much more prominent. I know we'll talk a little bit more about, say, the issue of China's role in development, the role of the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, these are really at the core of the activities we look at at the center and try to bring evidence uh, to the policy discussions around them. Um, and they, you know, I think because developing economies themselves have become more important in the global economy, um, our, our agenda has become more important. I think as a result, um, there's more attention for our work. So it's an exciting time actually to be at a think tank like ours. Um, I found it very satisfying in a way that's different from government service, but uh, you know, I think the surprise of it for me is that um, uh, one can have um, quite a significant in impact as a, as a so-called researcher, as a think tank fellow. Um, our services are very much in demand from governments. Um, I find myself um, advising governments in, in ways that uh, feel quite impactful compared to, say, you know, uh, uh, an earlier role as, as a public servant. So, um, uh, yeah, I think that's, you know, that's where I am today, uh, enjoying life in, in think tank world um, uh, and, and frankly with, with a, a much healthier work-life balance. That, that sounds great. Awesome. Uh, just to go back a little bit, because I feel like there's a lot to unpack from what you mm -hmm. just said. Uh, the relationship between U.S. Congress and international financial institutions said that relationship isn't actually very well understood among people. And I uh, think, you know, like if we take the example of like World Bank, you said, you know, the capital increases, those things all depend on congressional approval, things like that. Would you mind just walking us through a little bit more about the dynamics between international financial institutions and the U.S. Congress? How much uh, does the U.S. Congress actually end up influencing the specific policies? Uh, is it more like a, I, I don't know if this is a good analogy, like a fund-to-fund -fund investing in a fund and then the fund investing in the, uh, an actual company and then the company 
takes on projects. So is is U.S. Congress kind of like a fund to fund that gives money to a lot of different, you know? Uh, well, that's yeah, that's that's actually an interesting analogy. I haven't ac ever heard that before. You may have been the first first to propose it. Uh, I would have to think about it a bit more. But um, yeah, no, I'm glad you asked because I think this it is, as I said, I think it's very poorly understood, certainly in the international community. Um, frankly, even in the U.S. executive branch. So my former colleagues at the U.S. Treasury, in my time there, um, since that time, before that time. It was always striking to me how frequently surprised um, Treasury officials were by the power that the Congress has over these questions. So let's try to understand that a little bit. Um, if uh, the it, 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 let's look at the World Bank and the ownership structure of the World Bank. It is a it is a uh, bank. It's a financial institution. It's a public one, uh, but it has shareholders. Um, the United States is the largest shareholder. It owns more shares than any other country, um, which gives it uh, more uh, voting power uh, over key decisions at the institution. And because it is the largest, when it comes to questions of resource in the institution, do we want it to be a bigger bank than it is today? Um, the U.S. plays an outsized role in that decision. Um, so currently we have um, uh, Secretary Mnuchin at the, at the Treasury Department. He is the so-called governor, U.S. governor to the World Bank. Um, he can decide with his fellow governors from other countries, uh, uh, number two Japan, number three China, then the Europeans, that yes, we actually want to um, increase um, the pool of capital available to the World Bank so that the bank can lend more money to developing countries. And in fact, they did just that in 2018. Um, they decided they, they wanted to pursue a capital increase. So Secretary Mnuchin is able to give uh, what is essentially a political commitment that, uh, that the U.S. Uh, intends to participate in this. Now I say political commitment because legally speaking, uh, he doesn't yet have the authority from the Congress. Um, to pursue this, namely, he can't vote in favor of it in a legal sense at the World Bank. And even more importantly, he has no money yet to give to the World Bank. So um, unlike s many of his counterparts, many other countries don't have this arrangement. They don't, their parliaments are not as empowered. Uh, when they make a commitment to support the capital increase, they can essentially write the check uh, at that moment. Uh, for the U.S., it is, is a much more involved process. Uh, it has to, in, in 2018, uh, he made this political commitment. In 2019, uh, when uh, the Trump administration put its budget together and sent it to the U.S. Congress for approval, uh, included in that budget was a capital increase for the World Bank um, and the IFC, which is the private sector arm of the World Bank. Um, what happened by the end of the year in the Congress is that the Congress uh, wrote legislation that approved the capital increase for the World Bank, but it ignored the capital increase for the IFC. Um, that was the result of, uh, of an important uh, committee chair, my old committee financial services, uh, Congresswoman Maxine Waters, um, decided that she wanted more time to look at the case for the IFC. Um, and as we sit here, uh, there is a process ongoing between the Treasury Department and uh, the offices of that committee, um, as well as the IFC and senior management of the World Bank, sorting through what are the kinds of issues and areas of concern that the, the Congresswoman has, 
how might they be addressed directly by commitments from World Bank management? What might U.S. Treasury officials do to pursue um, these areas of concern? And all of this is a very difficult um, set of dynamics when we consider, again, this is a multilateral institution. The U.S. is the largest shareholder, but it's not the only one. Um, there are, in fact, 188 shareholders, uh, countries. Um, so it, it makes it difficult um, for senior management of the bank itself to make clear commitments to pursue certain changes in how they do things when a lot of their decision making is constrained by all these other uh, shareholder actors. Nonetheless, um, when it comes to something like a capital increase, this is uh, for the institution, for its shareholders, it's viewed as a critical decision. Uh, so if um, the U.S. Congress and particularly a committee chairperson um, is blocking it effectively, um, they take that very seriously and they seek to address whatever concerns she's raising. So, um, and th this isn't uh, a unique circumstance. If you look at the long history of an institution like the World Bank, um, you can go back as far as the 1960s um, and you will see uh, all along the way points in time at which uh, the bank changed its approach to key issues as a result of the U.S. Congress weighing in. I think that's not always so visible. It's not well understood why, um, for example, um, the bank has a whole set of standards around environmental safeguards and social safeguards and how it does projects. Where did those things come from? Well, actually, if you, if you look at the history of it, um, they were the result um, primarily of pressure coming from the U.S. Congress uh, on, uh, as a condition on the funding that, that the Congress would, would be approving for the institution. So it seems that, as you said, the U.S. plays an outsized role in, in influencing those decisions, the sort of the political agenda or, or the, uh, of those international financial institutions. Uh, do you think this kind of outsized uh, political influence is good uh, in the sense that surely the U.S. would have sort of more say in terms of how the World Bank or the IMF conduct its policies, but should anything go wrong, the U.S. would sort of be seen as, you know, the, 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 the country to blame, per se, where <laughs> the World Bank is often seen as the quote-unquote, you know, the, the U.S. kind of mm -hmm. uh, organization. Yeah, look, I think it's a mixed picture, and, and that sort of outsized role manifests itself in different ways. One very visible way is uh, whenever the World Bank uh, has to select a new president, this question arises again, um, will it once again be an American? It's always an American. Why, does, why is that so? Um, and yet it's so firmly entrenched that people often view this as essentially a, an, a U.S. government appointment. Essentially, it's this the equivalent of appointing a cabinet secretary within the U.S. system. Um, legally speaking, it's not that at all. In fact, uh, all country, all member countries of the bank have the right to nominate a candidate for the presidency of the World Bank. Um, uh, in my time in service in the, in, in the government, uh, we uh, nominated uh, uh, Jim Kim, who was the, the president immediately preceding the current president. Um, and when we did so, actually two other countries nominated opposing candidates. So it, it really actually was a competitive election. Um, 
nonetheless, um, again, you know, it's a very visible way in which, as you said, it's always been an American. It can that continues to be the case. When Do David Malpass was nominated by the Trump administration, there were no opposing candidates. Um, no, no other countries uh, chose to put put forward a candidate for for the shareholders to consider. Um, so, if, if anything, it, it felt like um, further entrenchment of sort of the outsized U.S. role. And, exactly. and frankly, it's not, um, I, I continue to scratch my head a little bit about this, that why is it the case that it felt essentially like a step backwards if we were looking toward a trajectory of something that is truly multilateral, that basically when it comes to the presidency, it's not just one country uh, selecting. Um, I would say it's also, um, while the World Bank is sort of uh, within the multilateral system, it is the leading development finance institution. Uh, it is larger than um, uh, the other MDBs, uh, multilateral development banks. Um, nonetheless, this kind of uh, arrangement uh, has been present and is even in other institutions and has taken hold in new ones. So. Um, I play an advisory role with the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. Um, it, you know, in the in the creation of that institution, we see um, uh, a set of rules that look very much like the World Bank's, but we also see a set of practices that look like the World Bank. So, namely, uh, it is no um, coincidence that the first president of the bank is uh, Chinese. Chinese. Um, it would be surprising to me that in future uh, selections that in America or, or things like that, that we yeah that we would not see a Chinese national at the Asian Development Bank. The president has always been Japanese uh, in the long history of that institution. Um, so you, and you know beyond that, you see it um, uh, sort of trickle through other levels of senior management. So. Um, you know, uh, expectations that certain countries will be represented, certain regions will be represented. Um, I think, you know, the, the positive side of all of this in general is that it does ensure that the countries that are going to matter the most, certainly on questions of financial resources, um, have a strong stake in the institutions, that they do feel, um, even as a multilateral institution, they feel a strong sense of ownership. Um, and that's important when it comes to the largest countries, the U.S., uh, Japan, China, and the Europeans, uh, because they can always choose um, to reject multilateralism. They can decide that, uh, in fact, uh, they want to pursue all of these activities through strictly through bilateral channels. And that has its own problems with it. So my preference would be um, with any marginal dollar of development finance or aid, that that get that go through multilateral channels. I think it it means that it will be a more effective dollar spend, and if if that also in order to to ensure that if that means that you have to have these kinds of arrangements for for the largest countries that they have some um, uh, heightened sense of ownership that they they have a stake in the institution um, that their money isn't just going into a pool that they have no say over. Um, I think that's that's a that's a reasonable deal to be struck, um, and you know, in contrast, um, there are other aspects of the multilateral system, namely within the UN system, where you don't have this um, shareholding arrangement, where countries um, 
don't have different degrees of say based on how much capital they put in. It's essentially one country, one vote. Um, and that creates a, a different set of challenges. And, and frankly, in the work that I do and, and, and the policy roles that I've had, I, I have a strong appreciation for the effectiveness that this basic shareholding model can have when it comes to um, uh, pursuing uh, development finance and, and development projects. Because uh, you just mentioned uh, s sort of this uh, retreat sometimes uh, from multilateral uh, co co corporations if um, a country decides to do so, say, say the U.S. or something, um, you know, the, the whole America first narrative that President Trump has put forward. But you also mentioned that we just had a capital increase, you know, Secretary Mnuchin kind of also gave the political commitment for that. So. Uh, does it mean that the U.S. isn't actually, quote-unquote, retreating from a lot of those multilateral organizations or talks that, that we still very much rely on exerting our influence in those organizations? Yeah, so I think um, on the one hand, I think by a number of visible measures, the Trump administration has rejected multilateralism. But I think what's interesting about it is that when you look at the multilateral system, uh, it has been a selective rejection. Um, so certainly much more skepticism toward the UN in institutions and the UN system. Whereas when it comes to the multilateral development banks, I would not say that they've been um, robust multilateralists, um, but we have to acknowledge that yes, they, they have taken key decisions like expanding the capital of the World Bank, now expanding the capital of the African Development Bank, which is a much smaller regional MDB for Africa. Um, and, you know, from where I sit, I give them credit for those decisions. On the other hand, you know, compared to what? And I think the question is, you know, even with those capital increases, are we seeing the level of ambition that we should see for the agendas of these institutions? So um, the World Bank capital increase, while significant, was still fairly modest. Um, it wasn't as large as I, I think the institution should be going forward. Um, there are other multilateral development banks where one could make the case for them being larger. There are also other ways in which um, the U.S. and other countries finance these institutions. So the capital increases matter a lot, but that financing channel supports um, one set of activities for the bank. Um, there is another key financing channel uh, that supports the World Bank's ability to engage, particularly in the lowest income countries. So basically, um, as a lender, the bank adjusts its lending terms according to the needs of the country and the ability of the country to finance. So if you are Malawi, um, you are likely getting uh, either outright grants from the World Bank or a zero interest rate loan, 35-year repayment terms. Whereas if you are China uh, and you are borrowing from the World Bank as China continues to do, um, you are not getting those easy terms. And that matters for the financial structure of the bank and how, um, again, how its shareholders um, support it. So yes, it's good in my mind that we see a capital increase. That is essentially supporting the bank's ability to engage in the emerging market, large economy, developing countries. Um, it, it isn't supporting at all what the bank does in the low-income countries. That has its own financing channel. It's called the International Development Association. We call it IDA for short. Um, it has to be uh, replenished, its resources have to be replenished every three years. 
Uh, the U.S. historically has been the largest donor uh, to Ida. Um, and the Trump administration, frankly, has not been a very good donor. Uh, it has cut levels of contributions compared to uh, the Obama administration really quite significantly. And that in itself is a little bit of a puzzle. There's no clear answer as to why um, uh, this administration, in particular the Trump administration, would decide that they do want to pursue a capital increase that is supporting the bank's ability to lend to countries like China. Um, but they are less enthusiastic about the bank's uh, financing for the poorest countries in the world. Interesting. So you really have to kind of break it down and mm -hmm. see. Uh, but who would be making those decisions? I suppose it would be Treasury officials who lead those kind of decisions, right? Yeah, I, I would say, uh, you know, more than any other actor, it is the Secretary of the Treasury who's in a decision-making role. But um, these things have uh, so-called interagency process. So there's a role for the White House to weigh in. There's a role for the State Department uh, to weigh in. Um, how does this fit in our uh, overall budget picture for international affairs? Um, and again, it, it's, there, there is a way in which the government, uh, perhaps not as coherently or as clearly um, as one would like, but there is a way for the government to decide essentially how much multilateral do we want to do, how much bilateral do we want to do. Um, you know, uh, it could be a dollar that goes to the World Bank or a dollar that goes to what is now the new U.S. Development Finance Corporation. Both of those are, if you're thinking about U.S. policy and how the U.S. wants to uh, play a financing role in developing countries, both of those are legitimate choices. Um, so you need some kind of process. Um, across agencies because while the, se the Secretary of the Treasury plays the, the leading role for the multilateral development banks, he doesn't have any leading role to play on the Development Finance Corporation in the U.S. or USAID's budget or State Department's budget. So you, these things have some degree of coordination um, around the big decisions. That sounds great. Uh, I just want to ask you this kind of one uh, critique or criticism against international financial organizations and, and, and see how uh, you would respond to them because a lot of people, uh, even some of my friends on, on campus who are more uh, liberally minded would, and progressively minded would kind of often criticize uh, development institutions like the World Bank or IMF as those you know, so-called uh, neo-colonialist sort of uh, organizations that, that go in uh, that try to um, exert the, the, the West power over the global South. You, you've heard of those criticisms before. So uh, I, it seems to me that, after all, the international organizations have done a great job in terms of promoting progress and, and, and going with good intentions. But uh, are there some level of truth to some of those criticisms, or do you think they're kind of an irrational way or inaccurate way of, of looking at the work that is actually being done today? How, how would you respond to this? Yeah, it's a good question. So, you know, when I was really entering this field and starting my own uh, uh, career on these issues, so the, say 25 years ago, uh, that was when um, this critique um, uh, was, I would argue, most visible um, literally visible in the streets. So you had protests, sometimes violent protests, during the time of the World Bank's annual meetings. 
you had an organization form called 50 Years is Enough, which was um, a reaction to the bank's 50th anniversary. They wanted to shut the institution down, a group of civil society actors and protesters. Um, so, you know, the, that really was the height of this, this critique. And, you know, the critique, as, as you said, was a, a sense that um, not only was the bank um, not achieving good results in developing countries, it was, it was actively harming progress in those countries as a result of uh, the conditions that the bank would place on its loans that, that uh, activists felt uh, uh, moved the countries in the wrong direction, uh, too much focus on uh, fiscal austerity, um, too much openness to trade from their standpoint uh, and investment. Um, and uh, the, the, the nature of the institution itself, it is, it is a bank, it lends. I think there were a lot of activists at the time who thought lending itself was not an appropriate way to engage uh, these countries and, and pursue development progress. And you know, this was also a period when it, levels of indebtedness in low-income countries uh, were very high and, and most of that debt was owed to the multilateral institutions. I think if we, you know, from the standpoint of where we were then, we look at the institutions today and the world today, I think we're in a much different place. So I, I, while I do agree, uh, these are large, complex institutions, um, any day of the week they're going to be getting something wrong somewhere. Um, either a project isn't going well, uh, they haven't pursued their own rules as they should, um, it's worth looking at all the different rules. How do they look to uh, protect the environment when they pursue environmentally sensitive projects? Um, how are they guarding against corruption in their projects? All of these things need um, constant um, attention. Um, there, there will never be a point where we can be entirely satisfied uh, that an institution like the World Bank uh, has figured it all out. Uh, so some degree of critique is always valid. Uh, but it's also the case, and I think even if, as, as we survey civil society organizations that uh, follow these institutions closely and think about where, what their attitudes were 25 years ago and what they are today, they would, they would say, and the people that I talk to would say that these institutions are in a much better place. They actually um, they engage more effectively and, and critically from a civil society standpoint, they engage more broadly. It's no longer the case for the World Bank that it sees its only counterpart as the finance ministry in the developing country. Uh, there are much more proactive efforts to engage and have accountability functions at the community level, um, certainly to engage other parts of the governments, um, uh, civil society in developing countries. The other thing I think that has changed a lot and it's important when it comes to thinking about these kinds of critiques is Again, compared to what and compared to whom? Uh, because you know, one way that the the world has changed dramatically are the options available to developing countries when it comes to finance, um, even for low-income countries, uh, who many of whom for the first time have the ability to go to private bond markets, um, to issue euro bonds, um, to go to other sources of development finance. Uh, and, and chiefly uh, sources of bilateral development finance. And if you look at that landscape, um, I would have a hard, you would, you would have a hard time convincing me that institutions like the World Bank are, are laggard uh, when it comes to standards and quality 
uh, compared to other sources of finance. And in fact, um, I think uh, the MDBs are at the forefront of, of a lot of of a lot of the issues around accountability, effectiveness, transparency, and really the agenda going forward is about how to bring along these other sources uh, of finance, these other institutions, actually to bring to raise their standards up to where uh, where we see the World Bank, the Asian Development Bank today. Uh, when do you think that conversation really shifted uh, in terms of suddenly having an awareness that we should uh, engage more broadly with civil society or, or uh, maybe at some point do you do a series of incidents or, or things like that, the, the World Bank? Yeah, or, I think it was, um, I, I don't think there was a... Uh, one turning uh, point. Yeah, there, there certainly wasn't a sort of a clear demarcation of before and after. I think yeah. this has been a very slow evolution. Um, the reality of it is um, that uh, change often happens as a result of bad things. Uh, so I think you know, what, what drives a focus on accountability, um, engagement with communities, uh, environmental due diligence is our failures in those very areas and, and oftentimes very visible failures. Because um, I think one of the things the World Bank has been sensitive to as a result of experience over many, many decades uh, is uh, media reaction to their projects. I mean, and if you think about, the World Bank does many things today, but it continues to do um, a lot of infrastructure finance. So, you know, by its nature, physical infrastructure is visible. Uh, it is big, oftentimes. Uh, it can attract attention, particularly if something goes wrong. And the bank, um, as with the other MDBs, have had the experience over many decades of of projects that have gone gone wrong, um, um, perhaps they uh, inadvertently um, or through malfeasance have destroyed some critical aspect of an ecosystem uh, in the building of a road or a power plant, or um, they've harmed uh, some local community or the livelihoods of some local community through displacement, um, and uh, you know. We have seen, particularly where there is a robust uh, press, uh, um, media coverage of those kinds of events. And I think those instances, more than anything, have, have been a key driver in the bank taking a more aggressive stance and ensuring that its standards are, are high enough to guard against um, bad outcomes. But we continue to see these cases uh, to this day. I mean, it's, as I said, I, there, we will never reach a point of perfection, um, because there are always trade-offs in these things too. Um, if you are so careful um, in how you pursue a project, uh, you're guarding against any level of risk for bad outcomes, whether they are environmental, um, social, labor, um, you may not get the project done. Um, and there is, so you will have, particularly for the banks developing country clients, a lot of complaints about how long it takes to do a project, and it's you know the that is often a function of these very standards and rules. So you know there is a trade-off here that that the bank grapples with, um, but I think it's it's clear that over time it has it, it has sought to have higher and more effective standards on these questions. Got you. Awesome. Uh, I, I know we're a little bit short on time, so I just want to also quickly touch on. Uh, your research on, on Chinese development finance, 
because uh, you specifically really lo look at the Belt and Road Initiative, some of the impacts it has on other countries, and, and I've read some of your other policy papers examining the, the debt implications from policy perspectives. W would you mind maybe giving us a very quick overview of some of your findings? And I know you're here at the conference today also to talk about some of those issues. Uh, what are, are you hoping to, to bring to the conference today in terms of those insights on China and also uh, what are some of your main findings? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you know, we were just talking about how the, the broader landscape for development finance has changed dramatically, certainly over the last 25 years, but even over the last decade. And I think more so than any other um, phenomenon, it, it is China's role as a, as a source of development finance, uh, particularly for low-income economies. Um, and because of an increasing amount of evidence of that, uh, as I was looking at it a few years ago, it, it um, caused me to want to focus more directly in the work we do at the center on China's role and understanding it, um, particularly in light of some of the key features of uh, Chinese development finance and um, what I would describe as official finance, namely not private banks from China, but uh, official channels of finance, namely the China Development Bank, China Exim Bank, and, and other financiers that are directly tied, essentially are government-owned uh, entities. Um, it is well understood that these are not terribly transparent institutions. So the very question of trying to understand their behavior is, is a leading one because it's not so obvious. Um, one of the ways the World Bank does sort of set a high bar is, is in level of transparency. Uh, the ways in which they do projects, their financing terms, all of the rules and timelines um, are very well communicated, very visible to the public. Um, you know, they put a lot of emphasis on translating all their documents to whatever local languages are relevant to the project. So in contrast, I think um, Chinese finance has a long way to go. Uh, it, it, it does not have this level of transparency. For those of us who play the role of independent uh, researchers and analysts on these questions, um, it creates a set of challenges in, in simply trying to understand, um, you know, are there environmental impact assessments associated with a project financed by a China Development Bank? If so, what do they look like? Uh, what are the rules? Um, what are the financing terms on the project? Um, what are often seemingly very basic questions can be can be hard uh, uh, to uh, to flesh out uh, when it comes to to these um, uh, these institutions. Um, so I think it's a combination of recognizing the scale of their engagement, and certainly the you know something like the Belt and Road Initiative is highly visible internationally. But if we try to really disaggregate the big politics of it and un understand the actual role of finance and the institutions that are and are financing the projects. Uh, we have a lot of work to do in really understanding uh, how the institutions act, all of which I view as a precursor to uh, the real policy agenda, namely, uh, as we talked about earlier, um, what expectations should the international community have for how these institutions act? Are there a set of standards multilaterally that ought to govern um, bilateral uh, finance? Um, because when it comes to, say, the basic rules of China Export-Import Bank, um, namely that it is financing projects in developing countries,
but what it's really doing is financing Chinese firms to do projects in developing countries. Um, we also have to acknowledge that that's exactly the model of the U.S. Export-Import Bank. The, the job of the U.S. Export-Import Bank is to finance U.S. firms and U.S. exporters um, many times in developing countries. So what makes China unique today is the scale of its engagement, but there are a lot of features of Chinese finance um, which I would define as weaknesses from a development perspective that um, are also weaknesses of the system as a whole. And I think there's, there's a really going to be a critical agenda going forward. And in many ways, if we think of, say, the past 25 years and even farther back as an agenda that was very much focused on institutions like the World Bank and getting their standards right, I think the agenda now shifts to the emergence of these big bilateral actors like China which in itself has gendered some sense of competition uh, from the standpoint of U.S. officials such that we now have this new U.S. Development Finance Corporation. So you're now seeing a rise, uh, a reemergence of bilateral actors. Um, and yet um, these basic questions of standards, how they do things, how sensitive are they to debt risk, um, I, we we are in the early stages of really having uh, some a firm. of those conversations and 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 yeah I, I totally see what you're saying. yeah so uh, you know I, I think that is where the agenda is going I think uh, what is uh, remarkably different today is that uh, China itself uh, still a developing economy though a unique one <laughs> uh, really is by virtue of its financing in other countries is in a leadership position on these issues. And I think that puts, uh, perhaps uncomfortably, it puts countries like the U.S., other G7 countries in a different place in thinking about uh, how to engage these issues. It's no longer a matter of the G7 uh, summit announcing uh, a new way of doing things because that's not going to be relevant if you don't have China, um, as well as, uh, as a number of other emerging economies who are also engaged in these activities. If you don't have them on board, um, and not just on board, but actually in leadership positions, then we, we aren't likely to make progress. Uh, <clears throat> just a quick follow-up question about China, because as you, as you mentioned, China's kind of, kind of it's still a developing country, but kind of a unique one, just given the amount of power and influence it kind of has in the global sphere now. And China has obviously done a, a tr tremendous job in terms of lifting people out of poverty. Um, but often people say, you know, they've done so with the trade-off of, you know, sacrificing individual liberty or things like that. So it doesn't, don't, don't, don't you um, walk away from the Chinese story kind of thinking, oh, maybe I'm a little bit pessimistic in, in the sense that here we got a country that is not a democracy, that, that has done things in a kind of a brutal way, but has very successfully achieved those goals. Uh, some of those some of those goals that we've set in terms of alleviating poverty and development. Uh, so doesn't that kind of point us to a more grimmer future in terms of the way uh, development models should be thought about and, and whether democratic institutions, those kind of long-held values that we have, would still be effective in terms of promoting growth in certain regions of the world? Yeah, no, the, I think this is, um, this is a critical question today, and frankly it's one I think that we grapple with at the center where we... Uh, how do we define development progress? And you know, there are very clear and um, remarkable ways in which 
China has clearly achieved development progress and, uh, and poverty reduction is, is really the leading one. It, you know, I, I think um, it truly has been a miracle um, and without precedent. Um, and yet um, we have this question of individual rights, human rights uh, questions um, that are posed by the China model but, but are also reverberating around the world. And I think increasingly in, in the, the arena of development policy, we have to figure out um, uh, what the goals are, uh, what we define as progress, um, and how we go about these things. So let's, you know, let me just come back once again to the World Bank. Um, in its long history, uh, the bank has engaged in a wide array of countries. Uh, it has done so under a legal standard for itself that uh, so-called political non-interference, that basically the bank will accept whatever government uh, the country has and it won't have any uh, views on that political system. So it can be a democratic model, it can be a strictly authoritarian model. Uh, the bank will still seek to pursue its development objectives you know, within the economic sphere. Um, but it's never been as clean as that. And I think the bank uh, routinely even encounters problems in the political arena. Um, so, you know, one case that, that I wrote about a few years ago is, is Myanmar, um, where you have, by the standards of UN observers, a genocide uh, that occurred. Um, uh, it's also a country where the World Bank is lending money to the government. Uh, uh, and, you know, grappling with those kinds of situations, you know, clear violent, gross violations of human rights by a government, uh, the government playing the role of a client and borrower from multilateral institutions, uh, the World Bank itself taking tentative steps toward adopting human rights standards for its projects. So maybe not seeking to influence the government as a whole, but in the context of, say, a health clinic project or an, even an education project, uh, having very clear and enforced standards around non-discrimination. Uh, you cannot discriminate against women uh, in the delivery of services. Uh, even more controversially, you cannot discriminate against sexual minorities. These are all rules that the bank has adopted for itself. I think the question of implementation is an extremely difficult one. Uh, it's not probably received the attention that it deserves because ultimately it does come back to these much bigger questions about we are, where we are going globally and how we confront uh, the question of authoritarian models versus democratic ones even as we see democratic or as we see development progress in an economic sense in a lot of different kinds of settings. Um, so I think we're in a very unsettled period on these questions and that's, that's cl clearly the case. Um, but there's no doubt that, that uh, we, we do need to confront uh, these things. Um, and, you know, and the challenge, particularly in a multilateral context, is that uh, you have the, you know, the very different systems themselves being represented as key actors of the table. How do U.S. and China uh, want to interact with each other on these questions in the developing world? I think that really is a leading question going forward. It totally makes sense. Uh, I just want to wrap up the interview by asking you this. So what would you say remains uh, the most pressing issues in developed, uh, international organization and development economics today? And also, since the name of, 
our, of our podcast is Policy Punchline. I always ask our guests at the very end, what, what's your punchline here uh, for our audience? Um, so I, I actually think the leading challenge that we, we haven't talked about today, uh, particularly for a multilateral agenda and, and the very vision of multilateralism, are what I would call, you know, what we would call in economics, global public goods. So not just what is the development trajectory of each country, each community within countries, but what are the set of challenges that are global in nature um, that we are failing to address? Climate change uh, being the obvious leading one. Um, I don't think we at all, you know, let's set aside the behavior of the Trump administration and your current U.S. policy on the climate agenda. Um, even in the Obama era, we really hadn't yet arrived at a robust multilateral agenda for what is an ex existential uh, challenge. There are lesser degrees of these kinds of global challenges and global public goods activities that we are also failing to address. Basically, cross-border um, um, agendas uh, that we struggle with as, as an international community. So I really see that. Um, and thinking about the role of these institutions differently, uh, because it does require a very different approach in, in how they work. Um, you know, one of the challenges we see if we look at the climate agenda is, you know, there was a desire essentially to create new architecture. So you have the Green Climate Fund that was established, but the new ar architecture is actually struggling a lot um, to garner uh, the donor support, to actually mobilize the levels of money uh, that have been promised and then operationally to, to, to do this stuff effectively. So, um, you know, this really is a critical agenda. I think increasingly, in the, you know, I'm, I'm somewhat hopeful about progress because we're starting to see signs in the United States that in, even in our politics, our, our highly divisive politics, um, the so-called climate deniers um, are testing the waters of a different approach, uh, namely acknowledging a problem here. Um, so it may be that um, there is some new political will um, within the U.S. that, that will return uh, us to a more constructive position, and then we can start this difficult process of figuring out big global responses to the biggest global challenge. So I, th I think that really is, um, that ought to be on all of our minds as a leading challenge. And that, would that be your punchline? Let's let's call that my punchline. Awesome, awesome. Thank thanks so much for being on the show today, Mr. Morris. I, I know you have to go. It was a very long and interesting conversation. Uh, I hope you had a good time here. It was my pleasure. Awesome. Thanks very much. Thanks so much. And this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. Uh, that was just me with uh, Mr. Scott Morris. He is, again, the senior fellow at the Center for Global Development, director of the Center's U.S. Development Policy Program and co-director of the Sustainable Development Finance Program. Uh, we're here at the Julius Rabinowitz Center as an annual conference on development finance in fragile states. Uh, thanks so much for listening today. Uh, please follow us on iTunes, Spotify, and rate and review us on policypunchine.com. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only 
and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.